0: Jesus was born into a borrowed manger and he was laid buried in a borrowed tomb. Jesus took the full weight of our sin upon himself and he was buried, assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Jesus didn't take a sample of humanity. Let me just sample it. No, Jesus took all of our sin. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church podcast. My name is Pilgrim Benham. I'm the lead pastor of Shoreline Church. And today on the podcast, we will be looking at the burial of Jesus Christ. I encourage you to open your Bibles to John chapter 19, starting in verse 38. Hope you're blessed by this study. Uh, We're going to be actually not starting in John 19, but I'm going to put a scripture on the screen And this is how we're going to kick off this final study in the series We've been studying through John called Road to the Cross Uh, The text we want to start on the screen is 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says to the church in Corinth Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel explicitly communicates that Jesus was crucified for our sins, that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried for our sins, and that he was raised for our redemption. And so we're going to be studying that second aspect today, the burial of Jesus Christ today in our study on Palm Sunday. Now, uh, if this is your first Sunday with us, we uh, have a method of study called expository preaching, where we take a, a text and we just expose what it says, and and we do that by studying through the scriptures uh, in book studies, verse by verse. Uh, and so we've been actually, I looked this up recently. We've been in the Gospel of John since the beginning of 2018. We've been in it a long time, uh, and this latest series called Road to the Cross. We've been reading all of the synoptic gospel accounts of the, the Passion or the, the Holy Week, uh, and we've been looking at the, at the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, uh, and the crucifixion of Jesus. And so this morning, we're concluding that series by reading what all four gospels have to say about Jesus' burial. And so to do that, though we are studying John, I want you guys to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, uh, starting in chapter 27, Matthew 27. And again, I'll be reading from the English Standard, Uh, then we'll go to Mark, and then Luke, and then we'll pray and start our time together. Matthew 27, if you would, look uh, with me at verse 57. Matthew 27, verse 57. The tomb, verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, "You have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can." So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Let's turn to Mark's gospel, verse uh, chapter 15, verse 42. Mark 15:42. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now let's look at Luke's gospel, chapter 23. Luke 23, and we'll start in verse 50. Luke 23:50 says, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we have this privilege to study the scriptures together, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would be the one who teaches us, who illuminates the text to us, that brings the application, uh, that allows us to leave transformed as we renew our mind. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be exalted and lifted up and glorified. And we thank you for the ministry of the teaching of the word of God and pray that it would bear fruit in our lives, for your word tells us of itself it will not return void. So, Lord, allow it to take root, to, take, uh, to bear fruit in our lives, and Lord, that we would leave not the same, but change. So thank you that we have an opportunity to study this text. We give you glory, we give you praise, we give you attention this morning. We thank you we're not the only expression of the church in this community. We ask, Lord, that the other churches around us, Lord, uh, in this Lakewood Ranch, Bradenton, Sarasota area, today would be heralding the gospel, heralding the good news. that This upcoming Easter Sunday, Lord, that the gospel would be celebrated and preached, and that lives would be transformed for your glory and for our good. We want to see this community transformed, Lord. Do that work that only your spirit can do. And so uh, to that end, we love you, and we focus our attention now on what you would communicate to us through your word. In Jesus' name alone, we pray. Amen. So turn with me to John chapter uh, 19, and we're going to be looking at verses 38 through 42 in our exposition this morning. And as we do that, I want to just begin this morning with kind of an introduction. When, when someone that we love dies, a lot of action uh, goes into the burial and the memorial process. Uh, if we have the money, what we do is we, we purchase a plot of land to bury our, our closest loved ones in uh, ornate caskets, and they're kind of lined with with uh, silk interiors if we're able to afford it, or uh, we may take their ashes and, and, and kind of encase them in an urn that's kept as an heirloom. Uh, some people, uh, our family uh, has had this situation where we take those ashes and we scatter them on a piece of land, a property, or a body of water that was near and dear to that loved one. We, we uh, spend that time uh, and that effort uh, to honor them. We, we hold memorial services to them. Uh, and it's really not for them it's really to worship god and thank god and just remember the life that they live uh, and we're celebrating that person we're committing to eternity Uh, we of course grieve for them and we weep for them which is is normal but unlike the world we don't weep like those who have no hope Uh, and, and usually there's some type of eulogy words are shared about them in their honor now unique to our generation today the the people living on the planet today we do some kind of updated things we'll actually do a video tribute in some memorial services where we show a slideshow of of pictures with song. Um, Social media pages are transformed into memorial pages where they say rest in peace or in memory or memorialized status. Um, Twitter will bear uh, the phrase rest in peace. Um, next to the person's name and then they retweet that and so that's kind of unique to our generation but when someone nationally known dies we do something even bigger than that we will do a funeral procession we'll have cars that are miles long in um, this kind of procession with their headlights on they drive slowly there's a police escort and reverently um, they're they're showing off their appreciation and this is all over the news feeds. The death of someone that is influential or important often will have the flags of the United States lowered to half staff in honor uh, of them. And then they'll even insert moments of silence into sports games. In the middle of the fanfare, they'll just stop. Um, They'll retire jerseys often. Um, The jersey increases significantly in value when someone dies. And then biographies are pinned to reflect on that person's contribution to Uh, Society now, none of that that I just mentioned was actually afforded to the Lord Jesus Christ when He was crucified outside the city gates on Friday afternoon in Judea, and yet the action and love and service for the Lord that was committed by two people was actually committed by the two least expected candidates. Uh, who took the time and the care to properly honor Jesus in his burial. And so these two men were Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. We didn't hear about Nicodemus in the the three synoptic gospel accounts that we just read, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But we are going to see it in John. So look at with me, John 19, verse 38. It says, After these things, after the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea, who is a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Now, if you're taking note, we know a few things about Joseph, and I just want you to jot these down this morning, or you can take a picture of the screen. Number one, Joseph of Arimathea, we learned, was rich. He was rich. Matthew 27, 57 tells us that he was wealthy. Uh, Scholars aren't particularly sure where Arimathea or Arimathea is, Except Luke says in his account that it's a Jewish town. That's all we know. It's a Jewish town. Um, Jerome proposed that it was probably the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, We're not really sure. That's Ramah, uh, which was the birthplace of Samuel. Um, But we're not really fully sure. Um, We don't know to what extent Joseph is rich. But we do know that he's not condemned for that. In other words, it's not Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew doesn't say who formerly was rich. But when he came to Christ, he gave up all of his riches. He doesn't say that he continued to follow Jesus, and he continued to be wealthy. I think sometimes the words rich disciple in our minds sounds like a contradiction. Well, it wasn't, and it isn't. Uh, Many of us, um, and and I understand why it seems like a contradiction. Uh, Many of us cringe when we hear that Christians are kind of extravagantly using their wealth, and I kind of agree. There's a thread going right now Preachers and sneakers, do you know what I'm talking about? If you don't know what I'm talking about, good. That's, that's a good thing, all right? But um, there's an Instagram thread going around. And listen, it's not a sin to be a Christian uh, who's rich any more than it's admirable to be a Christian who's poor, okay? Uh, you can be poor, you can be wealthy, and still follow Jesus. And, and Joseph is one of those guys who uses his wealth to further right the work of the church to further the kingdom and i've got some christian friends very wealthy who are incredibly generous incredibly thoughtful as they use their wealth to bless the kingdom Uh, and um they're they're awesome now i also know some poor christians who are stingy and don't even give one percent of their of their wealth uh to the lord's work and um and spend their their little money on themselves. So my point is we can't make a moral judgment against Joseph because he was rich. But secondly, this is the next thing we know. yeah, you put them all on the screen, thanks for that. Um, The second thing, so, well, spoiler, uh, he's also a member of the Sanhedrin, okay? Uh, Mark tells us that he was a respected member. Remember, this is the same council that condemned Jesus for blasphemy and ultimately to death. This is the same council. Now, we don't hear Joseph giving a rebuttal in any account, whether it was before Annas, Caiaphas, or the greater council, and we're not sure why. Why didn't he dissent? We don't know. But while Jesus was alive, Joseph still held the respect of the Sanhedrin. He still commanded their respect. Okay, the Sanhedrin, of course, was the highest religious and legal court for the Jews, kind of like our Supreme Court, and he held not only a respected spot on the council, which was respected enough, but he among the council was respected. Uh, thirdly, notice that he was—he did not consent to their decision or action. Luke tells us, even though he was a part of the council, he didn't consent to it. Uh, in fact, uh, church or uh, Jewish history says that you needed just two majority votes for there to be uh, a, a vote uh, in a condemnation of someone. And so, we're not sure if he voted against them, but they definitely had more than the two votes uh, to vote for his death. Uh, but fourthly, he—it tells us in various accounts, uh, Matthew and John, that he was a disciple of Jesus. So he was a follower of Jesus. Um, Luke says he was looking for the kingdom of God. He's following Jesus. Um, Now he would have known the teachings and the claims of Christ. He would have seen the miraculous healings and the demonstration of the glory of God as Jesus ministered. So Joseph was a disciple. My question is, why is this the first we've heard of him? Why? Because of the fifth idea, he was secretly a disciple. John tells us in verse 38 that he was secretly a disciple. Why? Did you guys see it? Look again at verse 38. Because he feared the Jews, okay? He could have used his prominent position to at least slow the tide against Jesus that night before, but he didn't. He hadn't used his platform to do anything noteworthy for Jesus while Jesus was alive. But now as Jesus is dead and pinned to a Roman cross, Joseph takes the courage to step in and do what he could do. I wonder if you and I sometimes often think we're the only ones at our workplace. I'm the only one at my college campus. I'm the only one in my extended family who is living for Jesus. We think that, hey, I'm the only one, and yet there's 7,000 who have not bent the knee to bail. You know what I mean? Uh, This one person said this. I love this. "Uh, In the hours of crisis, it is often the Peters who have sworn loyalty to Jesus with big gestures and fullness of self-confidence that disappoint, and it is the secret and quiet followers of the master, like Joseph, Nicodemus, and the women, that do not hesitate to serve him in love at whatever the cost. We need the boldness of Joseph, not just in the shadow of death, but also in all times and places. Now, it turns out that Joseph owns a new tomb. It's kind of an artificial cave that had been cut out of a limestone rock, and most likely it was located in a garden that Joseph also owned. We don't know for sure, um, but Joseph may have been thinking, you know, I I did very little to help Jesus uh, because I was afraid of the Jews, but now that he's dead, what can I do to help? I, I can at least help bury him properly. I think it's fascinating that a rich man offers his tomb for Jesus to be buried in. I think that's fascinating because this is a direct fulfillment of a messianic passage that we read in in Isaiah 53 regarding the suffering servant. Um, Make sure you write this verse down today or take a picture of the screen. Isaiah 53, nine, very important passage of scripture, the whole chapter of Isaiah 53, but in verse nine it says, he, the Messiah, was assigned a grave with the wicked, notice this, "and and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. We read in verse 38 that Joseph asks Pilate if he can take the body away, and Pilate gives him permission. Now, I wanna give a little bit of an understanding of what happened in the time of the Romans in Jerusalem, in Judea, uh, when someone died. Um, When you would crucify someone, Rome felt that the, the best way to actually humiliate them uh, when they were executed by crucifixion, kind of the last, um, the last way to really um, finally push that humiliation was to refuse them a burial. And so often what would happen is the Romans would just leave them person pinned to the cross. And you can surmise what would happen over time with birds and scavenging animals. They would actually, they would actually take the, uh, the body off of the cross and, and devour it, but now, As the Passover feast approaches, the Jews would have been horrified if bodies were left on the crosses. And so you know how we start our day with sunrise. We say the day is beginning, it's a new day, and then we end the day with sunset or midnight. Well, the Jews did it differently. They actually started their day at sunset, and then they ended their day as the sun um, was beginning to set. And so remember in the Genesis account, it was evening, it was morning, the first day. It was evening, it was morning, the second day. That's the idea that the Jews would follow. And so um, Jesus died around 3 p.m., but his body needed to be removed from the cross by sunset or by 6 p.m. Now normally what would happen is the bodies of Jews who were crucified were not buried with relatives. The idea is that this person was cursed, they were hung on a tree as the scriptures say, they were were executed. So we're not gonna bring that cursed body to have a final resting place bodily with our family members and then curse their memory. So what they would do is they'd take the bodies off and most of them would be cast into the Valley of Hinnom, which is kind of this perpetual smoldering dung heap, essentially, it was right outside the city. And that was what Jesus' fate was going to be. But because of Joseph stepping in, jesus was assigned a grave with the rich uh, and with the wicked Uh, now joseph wasn't alone look who else is here verse 39 says nicodemus also who earlier had come to jesus by night came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight nicodemus good old nick at night remember him all right this is the third mention of nicodemus in the scriptures The first time we met him was in John chapter three. Remember, he came and he dialogues with Jesus about uh, what it means to be born again. He was a religious leader. He was part of the Sanhedrin. Uh, We meet him a second time in John seven. The chief priests, the Pharisees, were um, sending the temple guard to arrest Jesus and he kind of steps in and says, hey, is this even lawful before we give the guy an audience? Uh, And so he took a little bit of a stand, uh, but, As Joseph of Arimathea is securing the body, Nicodemus is bringing thousands of dollars worth of burial ointment. He's bringing spices and powder to prepare Jesus' body for burial. The Romans would take a body and they would burn their dead. The Jews would bury their dead. And it was generally understood that if you were going to be buried, um, they would bring about half of your body weight in spices. And so we can kind of guess. The the stats are a little bit confusing. It's anywhere between 75 to 100 pounds that that, um, Nicodemus brings. Uh, And so we can surmise that Jesus perhaps was around uh, maybe 150 to 200 pounds. So um, he brought, notice that he brings myrrh. Myrrh was a fragrant resin that in this case would have been turned into a powder. It was kind of a powder form. And you would take this powder and you'd mix it with aloes. Uh, and many of you know what that is. You take that and mix it with aloes, and this would have provided kind of very pleasant fragrance uh, that would uh, be there um, kind of pleasantly aromatically, but it would also be preventative antiseptically. So it kind of fulfilled two purposes. It brought a great aroma into the room, and it also was an antiseptic to prevent um, decay, to prevent... Uh, the process, the slow process, it kind of slowed it down a little bit more. Now this is not like the Egyptian um, kind of mummification process. This was not used to embalm the body of Jesus, you need to know that, but instead to slow the corruption of death and the smell. That is the ultimate reason. Now I think it's interesting, since we're talking about this, that David in Psalm 1610 says this, notice on the screen, kind of reading through the Psalms, and you get to this Psalm, and it sounds a little bit interesting. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. If you've read through that uh, Psalm, you can just kind of overlook it and miss it. But see, Peter picks up on that verse and that idea at Pentecost. And he says, Hey, David did die, and David's body did see corruption. So who's David speaking about? And he uses that verse to say, David was speaking about the Lord being raised from the dead. So I think it's very interesting that this was part of what Joseph and Nicodemus were doing. They were trying to slow that process, but then Jesus rose again and kind of shortchanged that process. So look at verse 40. It says, so they took the body of Jesus, bound it with linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. I want to think of what this would have involved for a minute. Just consider this. This would have involved having to either set up a ladder to kind of climb up to the cross, remove the six to nine inch spikes from his hands and from his feet and then to carry him down from the cross or to use some servants to lift up the cross and to lay it flat and then to remove the body. This would have involved uh, slowly removing the crown of thorns off of the head of our Messiah. This would have caused those who touched and handled the dead corpse to be disqualified from partaking in the Passover because they touched a dead body making them ceremonially unclean. They couldn't partake in the most celebrated, the most beloved feast, the Passover feast, which is starting in just a few hours. This would have disqualified them. Just think about this. The burial custom that verse 40 alludes to was this idea of taking this fragrant powder mixture and and wrapping the body of Jesus. And then John points out there's also a separate headpiece. It's this full shroud, this cloth, and then the separate um, headpiece. And sealing the wounds with this powder and with all of this ointment and and these spices. Uh, And starting with the, the hands, the fingers, and then the arms, and then the whole body, wrapping Jesus with the strips of linen, layer and layer of spice on the outside. And then in all the folds and crevices, Um, 75 to 100 pounds of this material. Just consider the sights and the smells. You know that when you smell something, it brings you back to your childhood. You smell certain perfume and it unfortunately reminds you of an ex-girlfriend, right? You, You smell a certain thing and you're like, that reminds me of grandma's house, right? That just brings me back. Whatever that smell is, good or bad. Well, I just wonder if this particular smell, the myrrh, the aloes in the nostrils of Joseph and Nicodemus, if that kind of triggered for them a memory that every time after that for decades, they would remember this gruesome, horrific, and yet beautiful display of worship that they offered the Lord. Sam Storm speaks about how they would have wrapped every part of Jesus's body. And I like this. He says this on the screen. They wrapped his hands, which healed and held and helped, which were now torn and cramped. His eyes, which blazed and wept and forgave and gleamed with the joy of the Holy Spirit, now shut tightly in death. His lips, which spoke of love, life, hope, truth, faith, now parched and broken. His side, at which so many had walked and found comfort, now brutally pierced. His back, that offered to carry the burdens of weary sinners, now lacerated to shreds. His knees on which he had knelt to pray for others and to wash, the disciples' feet now bruised and battered. His feet on which he had walked to minister, which had carried him to the lost and needy, now torn and twisted. Now, I just want to give a little apologetic here. Some have made the ridiculous notion that Jesus did not, in fact, die. Uh, it's called by some the swoon theory. How many of you have heard of the swoon theory? Just see a show of hands. The swoon theory. It's ridiculous. But the idea is that Jesus didn't die, but he kind of sort of passed out um, and later woke up in the tomb and kind of unwrapped himself and then and then um, walked out and then led his disciples victoriously. Um, In a way, Muslims believe this. Um, We don't often quote the Quran, but uh, the Quran says, they did not kill him, neither did they crucify him. It only seemed to be so. Interesting. Uh, Muslims believe in the swoon theory. The swoon theory is silly and it's easy to dispute, though it's dangerous, okay? It's silly and easy to dispute, but it's dangerous. Reminds me of the prosperity gospel. Anyway, uh, if Jesus didn't die on the cross, listen, if he didn't die on the cross, wouldn't Jesus have simply died again later? as an old person or he just would have died later. Um, So how would that motivate his followers? Uh, It wouldn't. How, listen, how would a mutilated and tortured man suddenly embolden his followers to launch a new ideology after he himself was was executed by them but didn't fully be executed and came out uh, scourged and crucified and then says, I'm risen. How in any way would that motivate anyone? When we say Jesus died, that should kind of seem like a Captain Obvious moment, but it isn't that simple, okay? Um, Some people don't believe that truth. And so I'm just going to give you three reasons why we can trust the swoon theory is not true and that Jesus died, okay? Real quick, three reasons. Number one, Pilate's order. Remember, Pilate ordered the leg bones of those being crucified to be broken, uh, but they didn't do that with Jesus. Why? Because he'd already died. If you are a Roman soldier, you don't disobey a direct order. They wouldn't have uh, disobeyed him because he had already died. And that was the ultimate point. Break the legs if they're not dead. They didn't because he was dead. Secondly, the centurion. The centurion brings news to Pilate that he was absolutely dead. And Pilate, Mark says, was surprised, really. I'm surprised he died so soon. Often, people crucified would die over a period of days. It wasn't immediate. And, and so remember, the soldier plunged the spear into Jesus' side, blood and water flowed. As we learned last week, there's a picture of the pericardium bursting. Uh, and so the, the, this is kind of like a live autopsy confirming the death of Jesus. And he had gone and said, hey, I've done hundreds of these crucifixions, this is a normal Friday pilot, he's dead. But the third is the burial process. Think of this, Joseph and Nicodemus and their servants are intimately handling the dead body of Jesus in any sort of breath any sort of sign of life, they would have stopped the process immediately. They would have picked up on this idea. So listen, Jesus was absolutely crucified and Jesus absolutely died. We need to put that theory to rest. Now, let's look at verses 41 and 42. It says, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the uh, tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, it seems from this that the tomb was utilized mostly out of convenience or proximity. Remember, they're running out of daylight. It's 3 p.m. that he's crucified. They have to get permission. They've got to bring the spices. So this um, time was really short that they had to quickly and, and really um, just, just immediately um, do this. And so um, Joseph and his servants would have rolled the stone to cover the entrance. And we know from Luke's account that the women go to prepare more spices to bring not on the Sabbath, because you have to rest, but on Sunday. So they're going to finish the process. It wasn't even fully done. It was kind of began, but not completed. Uh, and so we'll see that next week on Easter Sunday. I can't wait to celebrate that with you guys. We'll see the women coming, just going, yeah, we're going to finish the process. And they're completely surprised by what they see. Um, but I think it's significant that also no one had yet been buried in this tomb. I think that's cool. Spurgeon theorized that if Jesus were buried in a tomb that had already had someone, uh, like a prophet or a holy man, that the Jews would just say, oh, well, that's because his body touched that tomb of a holy man, a prophet, and so they helped raise him from the dead. So I think it's interesting uh, that that didn't happen. Now, often in these tombs, you would leave a body for years and years until it decayed down to the bones. And you'd take the bones and put them in a little, like, stone box called an ossuary, and then they'd keep the ossuary in the tomb for, uh, for uh, eternity, for, forever, uh, uh, with the remains of other family members. But notice with me in verse 41 that it says, where he was crucified, there was a garden. You guys catch that? Some of you noticed that when we read that earlier. There was a garden. I wish there was something significant in the scriptures about gardens. I wish there was something powerful in the scriptures. Well, here's what Matthew Henry says. He says this, in the garden of Eden, death and the grave first received their power. And now in a garden, they are conquered, disarmed, and triumphed over isn't that great? In a garden, Christ began his passion, the Garden of Gethsemane. And from a garden, he would rise and begin his exaltation. Love it. Love it. Amazing. Now, as we seek to apply this section of Scripture, there's a number of things that we could say. Again, we, our time is a little short today because of the intermission. But first, notice with me that everything about Joseph of Arimathea Changed when he stepped out of fear and began loving Jesus. The word that Mark uses for took courage. He took courage to ask for the body. It's the Greek word tomeo, which means boldly, uh, or to challenge, or to dare, or to defy possible danger. That's the same word used in Romans 15:18 when Paul says, "I will not dare to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience." I wouldn't dare. To speak into. That's the word, that's the word, Tolmeo. that Joseph finally dared to ask for the body uh, of Jesus. He overcame his fear of man. And I think it's interesting that when he did that, his respect on the council, he was a respected man, it would have changed. Right? It would have changed to disrespect. Joseph's public acknowledgement of Jesus would have jeopardized his political career. Isn't that completely in contrast to what we studied last week with Pilate? or a few weeks ago where Pilate was gonna save his political career by putting an end to Jesus. And so, you know, I think it's interesting that even as a secret disciple, now he was an open follower and he was willing to even lose the respect of others. So if we're applying this passage, I just wanna jot down a few things. Number one, I wanna apply this in this way. We should also choose to love, serve, and stand for Christ. We should, by looking at Joseph's example, say, okay, cool. I'm gonna to choose to do what Joseph didn't do, uh, even if it means losing respect for people we admire and we are of fear. Well, ultimately, I'd rather fear God than man, amen? We must fear God more than man. And many of us live crippled lives because we're fearing man rather than fearing God. Uh, now, I appreciate that Joseph took his wealth and he Freely gave it, and he used it to serve Jesus. He was willing to become unclean. He was willing to miss Passover. He was willing to lose his new and unused tomb. Uh, all, All of this, and to even be set back financially to lovingly serve Jesus. I like that. David Gusick says that Joseph did not serve Jesus in many ways, but he did serve him in ways no one else did or could. He says it was not possible for Peter, James, John, or even the many women who served Jesus to provide a tomb, but Joseph could and did and we must serve god in whatever way we can so i think that's cool we can learn from that example but but secondly notice with me that jesus had already been anointed for his burial This kind of just stood out to me this week he had already been anointed back in john 12 in bethany by mary remember that had already happened and and so nicodemus brings almost 100 pounds of spices and ointment and myrrh to anoint jesus but listen uh not to like throw Nicodemus under the bus, but listen, if Nicodemus truly understood the gospel, that Jesus was about to rise from the dead, then perhaps he would not have gone to such lengths. That brings us to our second application point, that what we believe about Christ will affect how we serve him. And I'm not, please don't leave and just be like, yeah, Nicodemus was dumb. I'm not meaning to to like really throw him down, but Nicodemus may have believed that the death of Christ was just a tragic accident. So he overcompensates and does his best to show an outward act of kindness to him. But in the end, isn't it energy and time and resources that are kind of put to waste? Because Jesus rises again on the third day. I think some of us act like this. We, we think and believe that Jesus expects us to kind of sort of chip into his finished work with our own righteousness and goodness. And we don't understand that it is finished And so we end up expending a lot of energy and wasted time thinking that we're helping and honoring them when in the end, it really comes up uh, where we completely misunderstand the point of the gospel. Listen, church, we must grasp and understand and believe that that Christ is sufficient to save. Many of us don't know that. We don't believe that. And what we believe about the sufficiency of the salvation of Christ— in our life, many of us, if we don't believe it fully, then it affects us. We think, well, his grace only goes so far, and then it runs out. I read this week about a boy. Uh, it was basically the man who told a story about himself when he was a boy. And he said that my dad made me uh, not a fort, but a wooden castle. It was back in like the 1800s. And, and he said it was big enough, this, this little castle, for me to climb into. And yet the dad, this is a bad dad moment, but the dad actually made real pistols for the armaments. He made real guns on the, on the fort, on the castle. And so um, the dad said, listen, I'm gonna give you a full gun salute on your birthday. So I want you to sit down in front of the castle. Well, the little boy was scared, he says in the story, uh, because on his birthday, he thought the dad was gonna line up the guns and shoot him. And so <laughs> he sits down and begins to just weep and cry, thinking his dad is gonna salute him by killing him. And he says, how often does that describe us? That what was intended for our delight is misinterpreted by us. And here's what he says, this quote. He says, ever expecting to be shot, we are often dumbfounded by a grace we can't conceive. You see, what we believe about Christ, about the nature of Jesus, about his deity, about his worth, about his splendor, about his goodness, about substitutionary atonement, about forgiveness, what we believe about him, about the resurrection, about the gifts of the Spirit, the glory of God, his return, his kingdom, how we believe about those things will have a a profound effect on how we live our lives. And so if these guys understood the resurrection was coming, Maybe they wouldn't have gone to this overage of expense. Again, not to, not to hate on them, but I think we can do the same thing. Now, thirdly with me, jot this down, application. The gospel changes the story, doesn't it? The gospel changes the story. I think we have to consider what this would have been like if the story ended here. What if this was it, and this was the end of the story? John Phillips says this, I am just going to read this to you. He says, uh, it's not on the screen. He says, we can imagine how things probably went. Pilate went home to supper and to make a report to his wife of the day's events. Annas and Caiaphas presided at their respective Passover feasts. Peter wept alone. The body of Judas lay forgotten. John sought to comfort his new mother. The other disciples hid themselves from public eye. Herod and his men of war mocked. He says, did Mary of Bethany have a sense of expectation in her heart? Did a Roman soldier try on his new robe and another try to wash the blood of the Son of God off his spear? He said, the world spun round. Angels watched as some of their number went down to earth to prepare for the dawn of a new day. Just think about this. If Jesus didn't rise again, if Easter was not next Sunday, then what would happen in John 20 is that the women would show up the day after the Sabbath, Sunday morning, they'd bring their spices and they'd just keep on pouring on the perfume. The disciples would have gone back to what they knew, right? The fishermen disciples would go back to fishing. And we see some of them doing that anyway because they're confused. They don't understand what was happening. The tax collectors would go back to tax collecting. The zealots would go back to zealoting. And, and, And all that Jesus lived for and taught and embodied would be buried in a cold grave in a garden tomb near Jerusalem. And that would be the end of the story. But guys, we know how the story ends, don't we? We know what happens. The gospel that Jesus came, that he lived, that he died, that he was buried, and that he was triumphant from the grave, that changes the story. It changes everything. It changed the story for the disciples there in Jerusalem. It changed the Roman Empire eventually. It changed the world. And it's changed your life, and it's changed my life as well. And next week, we'll celebrate the power of the resurrection together as a church family. But I have one more application point, number four. Uh, Jesus experienced the fullness of the incarnate life and death of mankind. Just think about this for a minute. The most important funeral in all of human history was a rushed affair by two unlikely disciples that never professed their full allegiance to Jesus publicly. Jesus was born into a borrowed manger and he was laid buried in a borrowed tomb. Jesus took the full weight of our sin upon himself, and he was buried, assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Jesus didn't take a sample of humanity. Let me just sample it. No, Jesus took all of our sin. He took all of what it means to be human. J.C. Ryle says, Who need doubt the love of Christ when we consider the deep humiliation that Christ went through for our sakes, to tabernacle in our flesh at all, to die after the manner of a man, to allow his holy body to hang on a cross, to suffer it to be lifted, handled, carried like a lump of cold clay, and shut up in a dark, silent, solitary tomb. This was indeed love that passeth knowledge. What true believer need fear the grave now? Wow. We're going to close. I'm going to invite the worship team forward, and we're going to close in a a great song about Christ being our our cornerstone and my pastor's challenge we do every week just a challenge my pastor's challenge this week is simply to understand what it means to be united with Jesus in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection listen guys the gospel is not just heady knowledge theologically that we study on sundays okay it's radically more than that it's it's got radical practical implications even for the members of our body Uh, Listen to Romans 6, 3 through 14 as we close. And my challenge for you this week is to really understand what it means to be buried with Christ and raised with Christ, right? And this week, I hope that we truly grasp what this means practically for each one of us. So uh, I'm just going to read from the screen Romans 6, uh, 3 through 14, and then we'll sing together. Paul says this, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. He goes on and says, knowing this that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Amen? Lord, that's our desire today, that we would be buried with Christ, that we would be risen with Christ, that we would no longer offer our bodies to sin, but we would offer our hearts, our minds, our hands, our feet, Lord, our very members to your service. Thank you that you were dead and buried and yet risen from the the grave, victorious. And so Lord, may we understand the gospel today. May we live it out. May we herald the good news in and through our lives. It's in Christ's name alone that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.